Welcome to OceanFit's Onshore Podcast, where Andre Slade, that's me, meets the unordinary people of the open water swimming and water safety community onshore to talk about their adventures, lifestyle and passion for the offshore. In this episode, I meet up with John Van Wissey, a champion marathon swimmer from Melbourne with an esteemed international career competing and coaching in the sport. We're here with John Van Wisser. John is an ultra-distance marathon swimmer. And when I was going around Melbourne asking open water swimmers who I should speak to about open water swimming, it was John's name that came up just about every time. What does it mean to be an ultra-marathon swimmer? I don't actually know what the technical term is. <laughs> it might be anything longer than 10 kilometres or 1,500 in the pool. I'm not actually... Sure, I don't actually go around saying I'm an ultra distance swimmer. I just, you know, find events and something that uh, entices me and get ready for it and have a crack. When's it too short? Oh, I mean, so, I mean, with open water swimming, you could have a 10-kilometre swim that's harder than a 20-kilometre swim, so you never know. I mean, it can be colder or rougher or occurrence. So sometimes the swim looks harder on paper, but it's an easier swim than something on paper that doesn't look as hard. So... Unfortunately, no human being is a very good at swimming. We're only swimming at walking speed. So any bit of a current that's against you or waves and it really affects uh, the performance and the, the time of the, and uh, how hard the swim actually is. So, so yeah, so you could, you could do a winter mile swim and that could be harder than doing a 10K in warm water. So, yeah, every, every swim's got its own challenges and sometimes challenges come out of the blue. You don't know something comes unexpectedly. You know, like an English Channel where you, you're given a one-week window and you just hope you get good weather. You know, you can you can have a week where nobody swims or you can get a week where you get beautiful flat conditions, 30 degrees. So that's the that's the thing with open water. You don't know exactly what you're going to get. You have you have an idea, but it's sometimes things don't turn out to plan. Let's talk about those English Channel swims because you've done quite a few of them. Yeah. <laughs> How many? Uh, well, I didn't finish the first time. I got hypothermia. I was a skinny kid. Then I went back the next year. I got really fat, put on 23 kilos, and I got the uh, Australian record for a single that year in 94, but I was fat as. And the second time I went, it was a totally different country. It was like sunny and flat conditions where the year before it was – the water was probably 13, 14, um, four, six winds and overcast. And, uh, yeah, the next year we probably had 22, 23 degrees, sun out, flat conditions. The water was about 16 and – I was 23 kilo heavier, so I didn't get cold at all. Uh, so I did a single in 94. Then I did a double crossing, uh, I think, 2010. And then I did an arched arc in 214, which which is where you run to the channel, 140K, swim the channel, and cycle 290K to Paris. So I guess technically I've done four four crossings. Wow. And uh, what's, what, what's the distance? So there's the actual distance between England and France, and yeah. then there's the – the actual distance you swim. Yeah. How, what's the difference? Well, the, the straightest line, the coast of England's quite uh, straight, but France, you could try and land on the uh, the tip of France. And if you land there, that's 33K in a, in a straight line. But basically, depending on the speed you're swimming at and the strength of the current, because the tides um, are massive in the channel. So you get neap tides and spring tides, and you, you get you, the tides go from three metres to, I think, eight metres. Not 100 sure. I think they might go to eight meters, which is a huge tide. So, um, 
So, so the bigger the tide, the further, the bigger your S. You're doing kind of an S course. The boatman's trying to get you to land on that that tip of France. But if you miss that tip, you swim a lot further. So that's what I'm saying. You could you could have a small tide and 30 degrees and no wind, and and it's still a hard swim. Um, but then that same swimmer could get you know a big spring tide and and choppy conditions, and you and it's like doing a double crossing. So <laughs> so open water swimming, especially swims like the Channel, you, you just don't know. You get a one week window, and you know you just hope you get a nice a nice window, but you just don't know. So so I mean it can be up to fifty percent harder on certain days. So there's no two swims are exactly the same. And I take it when they record that you've done the the Channel crossing. I know there's a pub somewhere that you can put your name on and I'm yeah. sure there's a record book somewhere. Do they record the conditions that you did it in or is it just a black and white, you, you swam it or you didn't swim it? No, the, the English Channel, um, there used to be one now that's broken into two. Um, so they keep the records. They basically have to have uh, an observer on your boat. So they do a log and write how many stroke rates you do, uh, what you're feeding on. They they write everything down um, meticulously and they do a fantastic job. So. English Channel um, keep keep the records of all that, and yeah, a lot of people go to that um, the pub and sign their name. That's quite popular too. Um, I, ne- I never did that, but um, that's pretty popular. People go. To the, I forget what's. I think it's the white the white horse. Yeah, so I don't know. If there's any room left for people to write? <laughs> yeah, it's definitely become uh, quite a popular endeavour for uh, for open water swimmers. Yeah, it's fantastic. The weight you put on the twenty plus kilograms was that mm. on purpose? Yeah, so um, the year I didn't make it in 93, I was 19 or 20 years old and I was real skinny. I was very proud of – I had a six-pack back then, believe it or not, um, compared to now. And I I struggled to put on weight because I was swimming 100-plus K a week and um, I still swam through the the Melbourne winter, which got down to seven, eight degrees. Uh, We actually had a training swim across Port Phillip Bay uh, which was 40K from Port Arlington to Frankston. It was my sister and myself. So we, we were aiming to be the first brother-sister to do the channel and, and also to get the, the world record, which at that time was seven hours 40. But, yeah, we had a real cl- tough window. It was freezing. Uh, the water was 13, 14. It was just gale force winds every day, overcast. And I was still going well up to about halfway and I was lucky I had Dawn Fraser on my boat who's like um, swimming royalty in, in – she was the first lady to break the minute for the 100 freestyle and won the Olympic 100, three Olympics in a row. And so she came across our swim across Port Phillip Bay and she became – she came on all our swims, uh, well, most of our swims. And so she was – you know, she was a bit of a rock star. So, I, you know, I was pretty happy to have her on the boat and I was charging along trying to impress her. And halfway through I started falling asleep and I didn't realise that's just the – that's what happens when you get hypothermia. I thought I was, I'll be right. I'll just, I'll swim across real quick. I won't get cold. I'll, I'll get through. I end up passing out, and and she actually, well, there's a few people that claimed it, but she claimed she resuscitated me, and I woke up in one of those space blankets, hugging Dawn, and um, yeah, so I was pretty, I was pretty shattered after that because I thought I'd still get across even though I was skinny, and I, I was a bit despondent. And she got in my ear and said, "Come on, you know, toughen up, put on some weight. Let's go back next year." So I had to eat ridiculous amounts. Like I was going to Macca's and having five Big Macs and eat until I was uncomfortable because I knew it was life and death. And I ended up, um, yeah, putting on 23 kilos from my skinny weight. And I looked terrible, but God, <laughs> I thought I got across no worries. I didn't get cold at all. And But the next year was a different country. Like the water would have been 16 and we had sun on our back and hardly any wind. It was just a totally different place. Um, so, 
So I probably don't even need to put on 23 kilos. And we were front, my sister and I, uh, I beat my sister, which I was wrapped with because the year before she actually got a cross and she got the fastest crossing for the year, male or female. And if you get the fastest crossing, you get a Rolex watch and you get your, your time and name uh, engraved on the back. So I was a bit dark about that too. Uh, so I got a cross, but I missed the tide with about 2K to go. So the last 2K uh, took me over an hour. So I ended up missing the world record, which I would I was on pace to get, but I got the Australian record. Uh, I think I think I went eight hours thirteen, uh, but I was on pace to close to low seven hours. So it was, it was but at, at that stage I was happy to get across because of the year before. But then I look back, think, oh, I missed the world record. I should have got it. And then somebody actually broke the record that year, so they got the Rolex. So I never got the Rolex anyway. And. Uh, yeah, so that's that's my history for the, for those two times, and I kind of got sick of marathon swimming because I was swimming hundred plus k a week, and I went I did, I did a full uh, I changed sports tally and went to marathon running just for something different. So that so then I had a bit of a break from swimming because I just got sick of doing the k's and yeah. It is a long time looking at the black line, isn't it? Yeah, especially in a twenty five meter pool. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I was swimming twelve k in the morning, eight k at night, six days a week. It was yeah. That was probably for four years, hardcore. How important is pool swimming when you're training for an open water swim? Well, I, I, open water swimming is important if you have issues like cold water or you're, you've got phobias with, with open water or waves or you're scared of something silly like jellyfish or whatever. So you've got to conquer all those things, but... Once you've conquered those things, you get most of your speed in the pool. So I'd, I'd imagine most of the best open water swimmers do most of their work in the swimming pool, just purely like a like a 1,500-metre swimmer would, but maybe a fraction more distance. And they'll go to the open water if they've got to get their cold tolerance up or, you know, they struggle swimming into waves. You know, you learn to adjust your stroke into the chop and crash and bash through the waves and just things like that. But the majority of your swimming should be actually done in the pool once you've got over any issues with the open water. That's really interesting. So, what would a classic week of training look like in the in the middle of your block before a, a long channel swim? What what does an average week look like? Well, back then when I was I was training with Dick Campion, who was the Australian marathon coach, and he he used to torture me, but I loved him. Um, I really looked up to him, and he he used to turn up in the middle of winter with shorts on, and uh, he was always cracking gags, and he'd walk every lap of except the warm up. All the mates said he'd walk. You know, with his with two stopwatches, and he'd write messages on a whiteboard and things. He was so he was just an inspiration. I, I love the guy, and uh, so I, I was you know I was training hard for him too because I wanted to impress him. And uh, I was only a kid, and uh, he was he was a British Olympic swimmer. Uh, he was a fantastic man in my life, and so so back then it was yeah twelve k generally it was twelve k in the morning, eight k at night, six days a week, and every now and then we'd we'd go down to to a lake uh, called the Hazelwood Pondage, which was about a two-hour drive, and uh, that was where they dig up the coal. They've closed it now, so it was it was heated. So in the middle of winter, there'd be steam coming off it, and, and that would be 20 degrees, and he, Dick would be outside uh, walking up and down. We'd have a 1.5K lap. We'd just go up and down, up and down, and he'd be freezing and jumping over snakes and things and write me messages on the whiteboard, and we'd do long sessions like that and then go, go into town and get fish and chips. So... Every now and then we'd go down to the, the Haswood Pondage and do a long, you know, 20K, 25K session. But otherwise, most of the time it was in the pool, uh, except when I was training for the channel, I'd, ha- I'd have to swim through the winter. And um, I actually, the second time I went for the channel, I cut my miles down to about 60K a week so I could put weight on. 
and I did a lot more uh, swimming through the Melbourne winter. Because we're really lucky because Port Phillip Bay, because it's a shallow strip of water, it gets very cold in winter because less water to heat up and cool down. So in summer, the water gets to 24 degrees. In winter, it can get, you know, generally it's about nine, but it can get down to, to seven degrees. So, so we're lucky in that aspect. We come from the Melbourne winter to the English Channel summer. So that's, that's a big advantage for our channel swimmers in Melbourne. G'day, kia ora. I wanted to take a quick break to tell you about OceanFit. Back in 2009, OceanFit started as an ocean swim school on the golden sands of Bondi Beach. But now, we've become so much more. We deliver our world-leading training to hundreds of swimmers every summer on beaches throughout Australia, and thousands learn from our free educational resources online. Our Swim Scout directory, available on our website and app, will help you find a swim buddy, connect with social swimming groups, and discover swim events throughout the country. You can also participate in one of our events. Escape with us on a wet and wild weekend, or immerse yourself on a boutique ocean swimming holiday at home or abroad. So what are you waiting for? Dive right in at oceanfit.com.au. Enjoy the rest of this episode and swim free. So it can get quite expensive eating Macca's to put on that uh, 23 kg. So you, yeah. you, slim the, you slim the swimming down. What other tra- cross-training would you do? Oh, back then I was just swimming. I only started doing uh, gym work probably 10 years ago, but I was, yeah, I was just swimming back then. And I'd still do aquathons in summer, which were swim runs just to try and get some prize money because I was living off nothing, staying at home. And, you know, dad was funding funding most things. And so you're, li- you're living off uh, breadcrumbs. And, uh, but you, you don't care. You love it. You're doing it because you love it. And it's a challenge and uh, it's exciting. And yeah, so. So pretty much it was all pool swimming unless I was uh, doing an open water race or an aquathon um, or or Dick said we're going to go down to Hazelwood Pondage and do a long test swim or if, if I was training for a channel, I'd do an extra session. Like uh, when I did my double English channel, which was later, I wasn't swimming with Dick Campion anymore. I was doing my own stuff. I'd do stuff like 15 1Ks in a 50-meter pool, jump out of the pool, drive to the bay and do another 3K in the bay. So I'd do like an 18K session and finish with a 3K tired in seven to nine degree water. So I was doing sessions like that from a double crossing. Um, but yeah, when I was young, I was training with Dick Campion and that was probably between 17 years old and 21 years old. I was just doing the 12K in the morning and 8K at night, six days a week. It was pretty much um, 800 meter kick set most of the time after the warm up, and that was the... And then the sleep. stock stand, yeah, sleep, sleep <laughs> as much as I could, and I didn't have much energy for anything else. So that was that was uh, that was pretty much it for for four years, and then then I got into the running, then I got into the the uh, Ironman triathlon, and then I got back into the marathon swimming again later. So I've kind of uh, once I got sick of doing one thing, I went back to the other sport, and I found because I had a big base there, you know, once I got going, it all came back again. You still have a connection to the channel because you're training people? Yeah, still got a few channel swimmers. I don't get them away to um, chase channel swimmers. They just come to my squads. and So as in when I say I coach them, I'm not, I'm, they come to my squads and I just advise them. I say, well, you know, well, you, I reckon you should do an eight-hour cold water swim. You need this, you need that. But I'm, I'm not full-on coaching them. I'm just giving it – I'm advising them and they're turning up to my squads. Um, what would be – 
different what would you advise them now knowing what you had gone through and the way that you had cha- trained how, what's different these days do you think well it's more about having knowledge of what you're up against and knowing uh, and also how fat they are how their cold tolerance is so I every person's different so I'm unless they're trying to break a record time I, I'm, I'm more about them just I'd overcompensate for things make sure they're fat enough make sure they're on the cold water training tell them the pros and cons of the channel that look you can get there and you're on standby and it's frustrating because the boatman could say we're going tomorrow morning you get you go down to the um the Dover docks and the boatman gets the next weather report and sorry the weather looks like it's blown up we can't go so you got to be prepared for things you got to know that okay if the tide changes I might miss the tip of France Point Grenade and I've got to swim another three four hours around the corner so if you didn't know that and um, the person on the boat's giving you white lies and then half an hour later what they said hasn't come true, it, it becomes a mental game. So a lot of it is mental, knowing what you're up against. And then my, my goal is to try and uh, stop anything that I th- – get on top of any issue I think that could stop them from getting across, giving them as much knowledge as, as, I, as I know that what they could face and telling them all that. So they're prepared mentally and I've got them prepared physically to stay in the water basically for a day and just turn their arms over and, and land somewhere. So for me, it's it's just um, every person's different. One person might be too skinny. You know, uh, one person might just be, you know, might need positive feedback all the time. You know, I'm just saying, no, nah, you're right. You're big enough. You've done you've done these cold water tests. You're fine. So, so every every person's different. It's more just getting them mentally ready and um and then going over going over the list of something that could could happen, uh, hopefully won't happen, but could happen, and then they're mentally and physically ready for that for that if it does. So the channel was just one of the the marathon swims you've done. Mm. Um, tell us about the about the other swims and how they kind of differ from a classic channel swim. Yeah, well, I swam around Manhattan, which is another. Uh, it was a big race in its day. Uh, we basically swim around the whole island, which is 47, 48 k, and you start at Battery Park, where the Statue of Liberty is situated in the distance, and you swim around the whole island anti-clockwise, and it's a limited field, so they let about thirty in. Uh, so you've got a pre-book. Hope you get your spot, and they have a few relay teams too. And you've got a kayaker and a boat next to you. So the kayaker, you're following the kayaker and the boat's got the main food on. You're allowed one or two people on the boat and they've got the whiteboard, so they're writing your messages. But that's a race, so that's different and that's quite tactical because um, basically it's a tidal swim. So if, if you get the last bit of the race is when you go under the you – you go up the Harlem River and that's the long, boring, flat bit, and then you go under this – thing called the Spot and Dival Bridge and then you turn left up the Hudson where it opens up and that's when you swim under the uh, – That's then you've got about 10K to go and that's when the tide starts picking up and you're going at running pace. But if you're the first one there, the tide hasn't fully opened up so the field tends to bunch up again. So it's quite a tactical race that you've got to pace yourself that if you've got a massive lead and you get to the Hudson first, people at the back will start catching up again because you've you've got there before the tide's at its full strength. Sounds a bit like surf racing. Yeah, it is. It is to a, a point um, where you can cook or wave, you know. So so, so you want to get to the – I always wanted to get to the Hudson first, but I just wanted to make sure that when I got to the Hudson, I was fresh to hammer 10K for my life because I knew that, you know, people might have rested up a little bit that might have been 10 minutes behind you. All of a sudden, they're only three minutes behind you. 
because 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 the, the tide is changing. You've got there before the tide's at its strongest. So so more of a, it's more of a tactical race, and and when you've got the tide behind, you, if the wind picks up, you can have really awkward conditions the last ten k. So so Manhattan's is a beautiful event, as in you've got so much history on that island with the English Channel. It's just a dead strip of water. You've got a lot of history there with the war. But yeah, you know, Manhattan's got everything, and when when you see the backdrop of a movie, you always see well, not always, but you see often see Manhattan, you know, the Empire State Building or one of the bridges or Wall Street, you know, or Central Park or uh, so yeah. So I, I loved uh, Manhattan, and I, I went there three times. A little bit more local, you've swum across Port Phillip Bay. What's yeah. what's the history of that swim? Is it is it beca- it sounds like it could become one of Australia's long distance swims? Is it yeah got a bit of a history? Yeah, in the sixties, um, a lot of swimmers attempted it. A lot of Olympic swimmers. Um, Des Renford tried it a few times. He's, Des Renford had done the most crossings by an Australian. Uh, Chloe's McArdle's got that now. I think she's past that. But so Des was a legend of um of marathon swimming. He actually never got across. The, I don't know what happened to him, but Linda McGill had the record for a while. Um, yeah, there was a handful that attempted it in the 60s and then it died off and then my sister and I did it as a training session. And um, So how, how far is it? And it's about it 40K from Port Arlington to Frankston. So it was big news when we did it because we had Dawn. Dawn always generated a lot of publicity. So we got we got, we got great exposure and it was we treated it as a training session leading into the English Channel. I think we did it in February and the Channel soon would have been June or July. So... So we use that as a hit out, and and um, yeah, I still got the record for that. So it was just over nine hours, and since then, I reckon another five or ten people have done it. I could be wrong. I've, one of my mates has done it. Paul Hoffman, Mick Gregory's done it, um, Andrew Vidler. Uh, so I've had a few friends that have uh, crossed it since then. Is there any particular reason it goes in that direction? I think that's the uh, the longest point across. Perhaps I'm not 100 percent sure, but that's what they were doing in the 60s. So we just followed history, and so yeah, that that you was do it the that, same way. That means every everyone can be compared, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Mick Gregory ended up doing a longer version. He did from the Geelong bars to the Brighton bars. Uh, I think three or four years ago. So nice mix um, to it, the barbs yeah. to the barbs. Yeah, so so Maddie Painter from the Brighton Bars got behind it, and um, that got that got real great exposure. And yeah, so Mick Gregory's done a longer version across the bay. Although my sister actually did the length of the bay as well. She did um, Rosebud or Portsy Portsy to to South Melbourne, I think, and she also swam around the bay, which was 144k. So she's she's done that as well. So. Uh, but historically, it was Port Arlington to Franks, and that's what the that's what they started off with. So that's why we did did that. We were just following history. So that's a pretty good wrap of of your marathon swimming. But then you decided to mix the running with the swimming. Yeah. Uh, with the arch to arc. Yeah. I hadn't heard of that before, but tell me what it, tell me what it's about. Oh well, the arch to arc. We're not. When we did the channel the second time, I think it was, a French new, newspaper was promoting uh, a prize money for anyone who could do it. And I was actually going to do it uh, in the 90s when I was a lot younger and I was, I'd, I'd run a 227 marathon, so I was a, I was a fair fair runner. Um, and um, so I was in training for that, but I never got the funding. So it fell through. So I was, I was in training. I was ready to go. I never got the funding. And years later, we found out it actually became a, a, an event. A, a man called Edgar, Edgar, 
he actually did the event and he then set it up as under his company called Enduro Man, which do a lot of ultra uh, in triathlon events and the Arch Arc is the crown jewel. The Arch Arc is the crown jewel of that actual event. So I think they do things like 10 Ironmans in 10 days, things like that. The actual course goes from... Yeah, so it's called the Arch to Arc because you start in the Marble Arch of London and you run 140K to the channel, swim the channel, then cycle from Calais to the Arc the Triumph. So that's what's called the Arch to Arc. You start in the Marble Arch of London and you finish in the, or you hopefully finish in the Arc the Triumph in Paris. And you're allowed to rest, but the clock never stops. So you have to, because the English Channel, you leave at the high tide. So you've got to work out how long you'll think the run will take and how much rest you'll need. And if you if you stuff that up, you've stuffed up everything up. So right. So if you if you say I'm going to take I'm I'm going to be ready to swim in 20 hours, and you backlog 20 hours from the start of the run, and you take 21 hours, you've stuffed the whole event up. And then there's a the chance that you get to the boat, and the boatman goes, "Oh, weather's no good." <laughs> well, that, that actually happened to me when I got when I did it, because the year I did it, uh, we, we were on a big tide, because that was the only one free when we booked it. And um, we were the back of a hurricane for America. So every solo swimmer that was booked in that week cancelled. Nobody even attempted to go out. And uh, all the relay teams cancelled, which is six people an hour each. No one went out. But because I'd done a double crossing with that boatman in in terrible conditions um, 10 years earlier, four years earlier, he he backed me to have have a crack. But even there was a chance that even when I finished the run, he might have changed his mind and said, it's blown up too much. You're not allowed to start the, the swim. So I had a lot of drama when I actually did the arch arc. So I got lost going through London. I ran an extra 4.9K. I was running into uh, an English channel where every solo swimmer and relay team had cancelled. So I had that in the back of my mind. I'm thinking everything's conspiring against me. <laughs> and um, But luckily the boatman, he, he backed me and I, and, um, and I got across, but it was a really tough. Like I said earlier with marathon swimming, no swims are the same. And, and I was wearing a wetsuit this time because legally you can wear a wetsuit for the arch to arc. So I had the advantage of a, of a wetsuit, which is a big advantage. And um, and I actually missed the tip of France, Cape Grenade, and, and and the last 500 yards took me half an hour. I was sprinting for the finish, and I, I didn't think I could get in. So when I finished, I actually got in. I finished. It took 12 and a half hours where I was hoping to do it in about eight hours. Um, I was exhausted, and I was, I was well ahead of the previous record um, and I was legally allowed to have 12 hours rest, but the clock doesn't stop. But if I take more than 12 hours rest, the whole event's disqualified. But because I was so far ahead of the previous record, I got I get out of the water and I looked like I was dying. The crew said, "Let's let's have the full 12 hours because you, you know you're still if you can get get riding, you're still going to get the record because you're well ahead of schedule." But I could I was that tired I couldn't sleep, so I end up. Um, Sleeping off and on, like trying to like kind of like sleeping on an airplane. I don't know if you're like that. I can't sleep properly on an airplane sitting up. So it was like that. So I thought I'm not going to feel any better. So I got up after about eight hours, and I had to get the crew up, drive to the start. So we lost another hour. So, so I started. I started in about nine hours, I think, once we got going. So, so um, and then the bike course. We still had the big headwinds, and they wouldn't tell us the, the schematics of the course, but it's a really hilly course. So we had standard gears and I had a big headwind and I, I was creeping up these hills going nowhere. So so I looked back and thought, geez, I could swim four hours quicker. I could cut six hours of rest after the swim. I could take one or two hours off my bike ride. So even when I got the record, I thought, 
I could go 15, 20 hours quicker than this, you know, in a perfect scenario if I nailed it, you know. So it's all talk to you, do it. But in the back of my head, I'm thinking, I've got the record, but geez, everything's conspired against me. I ran an extra 5K. I swam on a day where everyone cancelled. I've had a lot a long rest after the swim because I was stuffed and we were so far off course. Like it took the boat an extra hour to get to get to the port when I finished the swim because because I ended up swimming 54k. I swam so far off course. So I was thinking if I have a decent tide and a decent day, and I now know I can run 140k and I can do it off off a quicker turnaround and cut six eight hours rest after the swim and ride two hours quicker. I was thinking I could take heaps of time off this. So. Probably a few months after I finished, I was already looking at doing it again. And did you do it again? Well, I, 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 <laughs> I've had a lot of stuff up since. I was preparing and I tore a cuff for one of the one of the um, one of the goes, and um, I was seeing a masseuse, and they thought it was only a grade one tear because it wasn't black. And so I'm thinking, I'm trying to run, and I couldn't run. I'm thinking, geez, I'm getting, I must be mentally weak. What's going on? And Eventually, I got a scan. It was a grade three tear, so I had no no chance of going. So I had to cancel that one. Then one year I went, and um, we we only had two days in the window where it was possible to go because it was it was blowing up. And those two days were thirty one degrees. It was the hottest banking holiday in history, and I'm useless in heat. And it wasn't predicted to be thirty one. It was predicted to be twenty four. So I took off on the run, and I was in better shape this time. I was in much better running shape. I was hoping to do the run two or three hours quicker and leave off a uh, 20-hour turnaround, not 24 hours from the tide. So I was planning to to run two or three hours quicker and, and have four hours less rest. And I was halfway in five hours, so I was well ahead of schedule. Then I started feeling a bit dizzy and I thought, oh, what's going on? I was getting a bit of heat stroke. So I finished the run. I ended up running slower than – I ended up running 17 hours something, which was, you know, six hours off six, – uh, five or six hours off where I wanted to run. And I was trying to go off a 20-hour turnaround, which just wasn't enough rest. I needed to rip, so I was a mess. Because basically that that, twin, that two or three hours rest is getting home, having a feed, having sleep. Then you've got to go back to the boat. You've got to get to the boat an hour early. Then the boat takes you to the beach you're leaving from. You don't actually drive to the beach you're leaving from. So when I say I came in 17 hours something and you've got to leave off 20, you've basically got half an hour sleep and then you've got to go to the boat. And I physically couldn't do it. And I tried to put it back to the next tide, which would have been 10 hours later. And because somebody had died um, a few months before me, um, Edgar's like, well, you've got to pass a medical if you're going to attempt the swim. So I said, no worries. And everything was closed because it was a banking holiday. So we had to drive into London an hour and a doctor especially opened up for us, but he failed me because I had too much blood in my urine and my resting heart rate was too high. So, But I kind of knew I wasn't going to be allowed. It was just a bit of a bit of a – you know, swing and, swing and miss. But, um, yeah, so – and then last year I was supposed to go and I uh, got a tear in my Achilles, so I didn't end up going. <laughs> and that was the week – that was so, six weeks before I was supposed to leave or I did – I was in great shape and I got carried away and I did one one crazy week too much. I did 40K more per week than I normally do and I got a te- little tear in my Achilles and I um, did water running for five weeks and I was still going to go. It was It was – uh, eight days before, and I got the scan and said, "Oh, got a tear, and I got a tendonitis and a crack in my heel." And thought, "Oh, well, I'll try." I, I got on uh, painkillers and I strapped up. I strapped it up with tape, and I put heel raises in, and I tried to run around the block, and I struggled to run five k. So I thought, "I got no hope of breaking a record." So, I, so that was devastating because you know I'd paid for the flights and accommodation and the entry. It was a lot of money. 
And um, so I didn't go last year because of that. So I'm still trying to get a window for next year. But that was all pre-coronavirus. And I'm actually still not running it. It's like 10 months later and my Achilles still not right, but it's it's nearly right. So, so yeah, so I was still planning to go back, just got to get the body right. I still feel, even though I'm 47, I still feel really good apart from the Achilles. And I still think I can, um, you know, take take a bit of time off it if everything goes goes right. I don't know if I'm delusional. So after all these years of doing these long, these marathon swims and mm. runs and even putting them all together, what continues to drive you to, oh, to I, want I, to do I don't it? Have a, I don't have a proper answer. I could make something up, but I don't have no American answer where, you know, I'm trying to save the world or anything. Just uh, – you it just, just starts it. off. Yeah, I don't know if I love it. I don't know I wouldn't say I love it. It's just a challenge and one thing leads to the next. Like I was a marathon swimmer first and I got sick of that. And then because I used to win the um, the aquathons, it was a bit of prize money. I used to beat some, – some, I was always a swim coach and I'd coach a lot of triathletes and I'd win an aquathon and they go, oh, you just beat that triathlete. He wins all these races. And I thought, oh, yeah. So I, I could always run because I was, I was just a, a natural, more of a natural runner and I was swimming so many Ks I was so fit. So then I thought, oh, I'll, I'll make the Sydney Olympics for marathon running. And then I was delusional. You know, I thought I could get down to 207. I was nowhere near that. <laughs> and uh, so then I got into the Ironman triathlons and then I got sick of doing that. So I went back to did the Manhattan swim. Um, then I got sick of doing that. So then the arch, arc came up. So it was it was more phases of uh, I'll go hardcore at one thing, get sick of that, then go back to a previous sport. And because I've always had a big base in that, once you get going, as long as you don't get injured – I felt um, my endurance got better and better. I felt actually more confident as I got older because I had big bases and, um, yeah, so that's what I found. You don't have the top end speed, but endurance-wise, providing you don't get injured, which I have a few times, which has always been my own fault from overtraining, just doing a crazy week, doing something silly. Um, Yeah, I've, I've actually felt better as I got older. There's a lot of people getting into cold water swimming. Yeah. Ice baths are becoming more popular and the Wim Hof mm. method and you know, people are living a better life because of the cold water. Yeah. Tell me about your cold water swimming background, but also the challenge of the cold water and how different is it swimming in the cold water as opposed to doing long swims? Well, yeah, I mean, I'm very lucky that um, I've got a good friendship with John Locko who you met earlier. And John, John started the cold water swimming in Melbourne 50 years ago. He, he's the president of the Brighton Icebergers. So when I was – he actually – there's a place in Melbourne called the Brighton Sea Bars and they were going to close it in the 90s and he became the mayor to keep it open. So um, I used to work down there. He got me a job there. I used to work there um, and train, train there through winter in, in the cold. And the first year I did it, would, I would have been 16, 17. And I can't actually remember this. Johnny reckons that I, I was sitting in the shower in a chair, shaking away. He was getting me hot chocolate, so I, I looked like I was going to die. So the first, the first few years when you're a skinny kid, it was horrible. And now, now I'm um, I'm bigger and fatter, and I've done it for thirty years. I actually lo- I love the cold. I, I prefer the cold than the heat. I'm hopeless in hot in heat. Um, so my body's totally changed. Now, so I actually prefer prefer to to, to run. I, I run way better if it's zero degrees than I would if it was twenty degrees. I'm a big sweater and I generate heat. And you know, I, I race. I do the arched arc at hundred kilos, so I'm not a sixty kilo triathlete build. Um, so the cold is actually suits me. Um, but it, it is amazing because 
you look at all the people that do it and they all seem to be happy and, you know, uh, get something out of it. But on paper, you'd think swimming in sub 10 degrees is is crazy, but the people that do it all seem to be on top of things and happy and so there must, there must be something in it. But, yeah, I, I actually, I love it. But I did it later in I did it later in life. I only did it when I was young to build up my cold tolerance. And then as I got older and I wasn't training with Dick Camping anymore, I was doing my own stuff. I, I'd actually go to the Brighton Bars and swim through winter and because I, I enjoyed it. And um, yeah, it's uh, I, yeah for me, I, I love the cold. Give me the cold over the heat any day. What would be the coldest you've swum in? Three times in thirty years, it's got to six point something in the bay. So that's been the coldest. Wow. But generally, it's it's between seven and nine degrees. Like we have a race in the Brighton Bars every year called the the Harry Raceback Winter Mile, which Johnny Johnny Locko actually started. So I've done that on and off for um, over the last thirty years. The only time I miss it if I'm overseas doing English Channel or some other event. But yeah, so and you've got a good history in that. Yeah, yeah, I've done that race twenty five times, and yeah, it's um, I've won it twenty five times. <laughs> So it wasn't on this year because of the coronavirus, but every year I get nervous because I'm getting older and a little bit slower. So I'm always worried that some young kid's going to beat me. But, uh, yeah, so the, the swimmer who's looking like you might come second or or she might come second is hoping that you're away that year so, so well, they can pick up the win. <laughs> yeah, every year you've got some new new challenger and it's always tough and it's, get, it's getting tougher as I get older and slower. But, but yeah, endurance-wise I feel really good. You, like I said, as you get older you get a bit slower and obviously I'm – I haven't got the six pack anymore. I missed that from when I was uh, when I was a teenager, but I feel feel really good apart from having a few niggles, you know, which are all self inflicted. So if I'm going to get on top of that and train smart and don't do crazy weeks, I'm hoping to have another crack the arched arc down the track. Tell me about your coaching because that's obviously come from you know your passion of being an athlete. Yeah. What drives you to be a coach? Well, it was actually – it was a bit of a fluke at first. I was coaching um, some age group pool swimmers and they did really well. And they they organised at the pool I now work at. They spoke to the boss of the pool, who a man called Wojtek Klim, who was the, the, the super swimmer Michael Klim's father. So they actually organised uh, a master's group and we were called the Kingfish. And they did all the paperwork, everything. All I had to do was turn up, had a tub, sign your name, six bucks in the tub, and that's how I started my coaching. So it was it wasn't I love to claim it, but it was just kind of luck. I was coaching these girls and they did they did really well and they wanted me to keep coaching them and and they organized the squads and and eventually it the numbers grew to about a hundred people, but they were mostly triathletes. But you still had to join the Kingfish Masters Club if you wanted to swim with me. So the Masters Association thought we were a massive club and wanted us to put on functions and everything because it looked like we had a big club. But in reality, there was probably only six people that were Masters swimmers. So it ended up becoming too hard and it folded and it just became John's squad. So it's not a Masters club anymore. And then I ended up getting a few more lanes here or there. So I kind of just fluked it. I just fell into it. And and I'm real lucky because, you know, People want to generally. People want to see you, you know. So it's not like you're a dentist or something, but people don't want to see you. I don't get paid like a dentist, but so it's a great job, and you know I work funny hours, morning and night. But I can I can work, you know, I, I could work more if I wanted to during the day. But I don't. I, I just work morning and nights most of the time, and gives me time to train during the day. So it's perfect for for my lifestyle. And like I said, people people I coach follow it, and then I often coach other people that are. You know, trying to achieve something, so I get a kick out of that. If somebody 
you know, does an English channel and, or wins a triathlon or goes to a YI man. So I have all kinds of people who just want to keep fit, um, people who want to be elite triathletes or or do an English channel or I've had a few Manhattan swimmers. So it, it's a great, great uh, lifestyle. And you're swimming, you're coaching in the pool and in the open water? Yeah, in summertime I move my Wednesday night from the pool. So the 1st of December I – I moved my Wednesday night to Half Moon Bay Beach and we go right till the end of end of March and that's always a real popular session. And we used to get huge numbers because 20 years ago no one, no one else was doing it so I used to get it like 100 people turn up. But now everyone does it now so we still get like 50 people turn up so it's really good race simulation. Uh, so people people come that aren't in my squads, they come from, from all over the place and so it's very good race simulation and uh, so that's always a real popular session. But, yeah, in the old days when not many other coaches were doing it, we used to get massive numbers and it was, it was basically you could just have a, a race simulation where people got used to swimming over each other and, you know, I said, oh, toughen up. This is what happened to you in a race and it's perfect training and, and people generally loved it because of that. And the, the swim, especially for tri- triathletes, the swim is often their weakest leg and if they've only ever trained in the pool before, they get to, you know, the triathlon day and... You know, it all goes bad for them from the start, yeah. and it's the first leg, so it sets yeah. up a really bad race. And yeah, gen- generally triathletes uh, swimming's probably their weaker leg because it's because it's the shortest leg of the of the three, really. And the swim leg, you're fresh, you can draft, you can wear a wetsuit, so you don't have to put as much time into the swim, you know, as compared to the bike, the bike and the run. So, so generally, I think not always, but generally, triathletes come from more leg dominated backgrounds. You do get swimmers that go on a triathlon, but but yeah, so so there are, I do have people that have uh, open water phobias too. So they might have had a near drowning experience as a kid. So they they you know they they can swim in a pool, but they can't put their face down in the open water. So I've had a few of that, and they've gone on to do an Ironman. And yeah, so I've had stories like that, which is also really awesome when you see someone who can't put their face down and then end up doing an Ironman. That's that's a that's I think those feeling. people those people are amazing. You know, they conquer their fears like that. So I've had quite a few of those too. Well, John, it's been it's been great to catch up. I mean, you are a legend of the of the sport oh, thanks, here. Thanks, Andre. Don't know about that, but there's been plenty of stuff ups too. But hopefully, there's a few more uh, successes to come, and I still feel pretty good. Get the body right, and hopefully, I've got a few more few more things. And if that's anything I've learned from talking to you, is that you know you can be a great swimmer, you can have ideas of the events that you want to do, but that's the easy part. Mm. The hard part is the actual the grind. The, oh, the conditions, the yeah. timing, and and just some luck. Well, there's a lot of luck involved with, uh, with these events, and you know your preparation, and 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 like I said, a lot of my things were self inflicted where I got injured because I did I got crazy, and if somebody was coaching me, they wouldn't have I wouldn't have done it. But I I, I got to the stage in my age where I, I don't have coaches anymore, and which is a strength and a weakness because you can get carried away. And if I was coaching someone else, I would have wouldn't have told them to do that. But you get emotionally invested in yourself and do too much sometimes and but yeah it is it is uh yeah you never know what you're going to get with uh open water swimming and endurance events and that's that's part of the appeal too so what's the what's the future what are you what are you aiming for in the next five to ten years is well the arch is my big big one i want to try and get my body right and get another window and um yeah that's that's it that's always in the top top of the list for me is there a nemesis out there is there someone else who's the john who's going for it I, i never know um because people uh, people try it all the time in summertime. It's it's amazing. It's booked up um, for three or four months in summer. Somebody's attempting it every week, 
So you wouldn't think so, but yeah, it's it's quite popular. And uh, Edgar Edgie's he's a legend, the guy that runs the event. He's a fantastic man, and he's uh, he's got a great event going. And I'm hanging to have another crack. Just want to get get my Achilles right and uh, get get going again, and hopefully don't make the same mistakes I've made a few times where I've over trained and get a good window, and hopefully I can uh, seal the deal. Well, you're definitely a passionate man as well, and I, I feel like I could come back here in 50 years' time, and you'll still be coaching in the morning, you'll still <laughs> be swimming that. in the afternoon, and you'll be still trying to take I'm on a simple some man. sort of record. <laughs> I'm a simple man. A lot life simple, and yeah, no, it's been been good so far. Thanks for your time, John. Thanks, Andre. Appreciate it. Oh.